Father, we do ask for Your Holy Spirit to open our eyes, our hearts, our minds, that we might see You and have knowledge of You and come to worship You. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had that very odd experience of talking to someone who is sleepwalking? Maybe sleep talking in their sleep? Are you all sleepwalking this morning? It's very strange. Uh, they're not awake, but they might be walking around. Their, their eyes might be open, but they're not in touch with reality. And if you were to say something to them, they're not going to understand what you say, even if they respond in some bizarre way. Of course, they don't realize that they're asleep. In whatever dream world they're in, things probably make sense in the way that things do in a dream until you wake up. And if you remembered at all that you were sleepwalking, you would think how odd it was. Usually you don't remember, and maybe your loved one tells you, uh, do you remember saying this last night? And you say, no, I don't remember that at all. Well, in our gospel text this morning, we, we have this very odd encounter between Jesus and this man named Nicodemus. It's actually a very familiar text for many Christians. It's where we get the idea of being born again. It's the text that leads up to the most famous Bible verse that we know, John 3.16. But it's a very strange encounter, at least from the perspective of Nicodemus. John tells us that Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. Physically, he was awake. But spiritually, he was sleepwalking. He and Jesus are speaking the same language, but he's not grasping what Jesus is saying. You see, Nicodemus hadn't woken up yet. He was still in some sort of dream world. He had not yet come to believe the light of the world had dawned and was, in fact, standing right in front of him. If you brought your Bibles with you today or your iPhones, go ahead and turn them to John chapter 3 where we meet Nicodemus and see his nighttime interaction with Jesus. Give a little bit of context from chapter 2. John has just finished telling us that a lot of people in Jerusalem had seen Jesus' signs, which are his miracles, and that they believed in him. But we're also told that Jesus didn't believe in them. It's a play on words. Sounds a little harsh. But Jesus realized that people were easily wowed when they saw something spectacular, like a miracle. But the faith that was generated uh, by a miracle was not really a deep and lasting one. It was more of one of intrigue, of fascination. I wouldn't necessarily even call it faith, but they were believing they were coming to Jesus. And so then it goes right over into chapter 3, and Nicodemus is sort of included in this group of these people who saw the miracles and were fascinated, and so he came to Jesus. Although we're not told that Nicodemus believed in Jesus, because it wasn't quite as easy for him. The stakes were higher. We're told that he was a Pharisee, but not just any Pharisee. He was one of the rulers of the Jews, is what the text says, which people think means he was part of the Sanhedrin, that ruling council of the Jews that had the trial for Jesus. So Nicodemus is this important man. 
He's an educated man. He's a religious leader. He's a theologian. He's a teacher. But he seems to have an open mind about things. Unlike some other Pharisees, he he wants to know more. He's intrigued by Jesus. So he comes to Jesus at night. We're not 100% sure why he came at night. Uh, We can make some pretty educated guesses. It might have been because there were crowds around Jesus during the day. And he wanted an uninterrupted conversation with this rabbi. And so he came at night. Probably more likely it was because he was an educated, important man. He was part of the ruling council. Jesus was a controversial figure. And so he wanted to kind of be under the cover of night if seen talking to Jesus. But John, the gospel writer, has a different reason for including this detail about darkness. He includes it because he's telling us something about Nicodemus' spiritual state. He's still in the dark. He's sleepwalking. He hasn't woken up yet to the new day that is dawning. Well, Nicodemus makes some initial observations about Jesus. We see it in verse 2. And they are correct in us so far as they go. He says, Rabbi, to Jesus, uh, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Well, that's true. Jesus is from God, and God is with them, and that's why he's doing miracles. Nicodemus is doing what we do all the time. He's understanding something based on what he's observed. That's, that's how we interact with the world. That's how we make decisions and form conclusions. That's how we do science. But here's the problem. That approach is entirely inadequate for knowing Jesus. It's a great way of understanding life in many other ways and doing economics or biology, but it's not going to help us truly understand Jesus. Listen to how Jesus responds to Nicodemus in verse 3. Jesus answered him, saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again or born from above, we'll come back to that, Unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So he's really bringing up two ideas here, Jesus is. One, that Nicodemus would recognize and at least thought he understood, which was the kingdom of God. Thoroughly Jewish idea, the kingship of God, the Messiah, all these things. A Jewish theologian, a Jewish teacher like him would have had some familiarity. But the other thing that he says, Nicodemus misunderstands and doesn't really know what Jesus is talking about. And that's this idea of being born again. But here's the extra confusing part. The Greek word again can also be translated from above. Born again, born from above. Which is the correct translation? Well, it seems that Nicodemus hears born again. And that's why he responds as he does in verse 4. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? That sounds absurd to Nicodemus. How can this being born again have anything to do with the kingdom of God? But I don't think Jesus primarily meant born again. I think Jesus meant born from above. Now, to be born from above is a new birth, right? It's a second experience of birth, although very different from the first one. So yes, in some sense, it's really both. To be born from above is to be born again. But I think his primary emphasis is born from above. But this is lost on Nicodemus because he's in the dark, because he's sleepwalking, 
The British theologian and missionary Leslie Newbegin uh, writes this. Nicodemus has shown that his mind is moving in a flatland world. The meaning of from above is beyond his present perception. He can only think of again, a new start on the same flat earth. What is needed is to awake him to the reality and therefore the possibility of that wholly other dimension which is expressed in the phrase from above. Someone who's sleepwalking has a pretty distorted understanding of reality. They're in their own little world. And the only way for them to see what's going on to get reality is to wake up. But here's the problem. They can't wake themselves up. Internally, physically, we might have this spiritual clock, no, this physical clock that would wake us up. Maybe, I don't know how that would have worked this morning, uh, an hour or two early or late. But spiritually, that's not the case. We, we don't have that. Turning the light on to someone who's sleepwalking, that's not going to help. They're sleepwalking. Their eyes are already open. Something more radical has to take place from outside of us if we're ever going to see and enter the kingdom of God. We must be acted on from above. And not just woken up, but recreated. Born into a new reality. Born into a new life. Jesus continues on, verses 5 and 6, and he talks about this new birth as being of the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit. To know Him rightly, to have true faith, to see and to enter the kingdom of God requires a sovereign act of God the Holy Spirit. Go back a couple of chapters in John. Chapter 1, he writes this, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is God's will, not our own, that brings about a spiritual new birth. We can no more bring about our spiritual birth than a baby can bring about his or her own physical birth. It's interesting to think about that the two most significant events in a person's life, being born, existing in the first place, and then being spiritually reborn or born from above, neither one of them were primarily our initiative. It was God and and our parents who decided for us to be physically born and then to be spiritually born. Well, as educated as Nicodemus was, as powerful as he was, he had position, he even had an open mind. We put a lot of value today on being an open mind. To to be an educated person, you have to explore new ideas. Well, Nicodemus was that. But despite all these things, he was never going to come to understand the kingdom apart from a radical rebirth from outside himself, from above, from the Holy Spirit. There are no self-made men and women in the kingdom of God. Everyone enters it the same way as newborn babes. That's the only way to get in. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So why is this so hard for Nicodemus to understand? Well, in part, because he's sleepwalking. But in his sleepwalking state, he also has all of this background, this education, this knowledge of what he thinks things are that's going to make it really difficult for him to see what Jesus is talking about. As a learned Jewish man, he had some idea of the kingdom of God. 
And he had an idea of how one entered it. For him, the kingdom of God would have been a worldly political reality. And the Messiah would have been this political ruler, like a second David. For a Pharisee, the way to experience the kingdom was to keep Torah, was to keep the law. We give the Pharisees such a hard time. I asked my kids this morning, I said, what's a Pharisee? And they're like, they're those bad people. Well, yeah, they do have, you know, a pretty bad reputation in the Gospels. But let me just pause for a moment and let's put ourselves in their shoes. Imagine if our best understanding, supported in part at least by the Old Testament scriptures, was that keeping God's law was the way for his kingdom to come on earth. Wouldn't we do everything in our power to make sure we kept the law? Wouldn't we be strict about Sabbath keeping and ritual cleanliness? Wouldn't we create some extra regulations just to make sure we didn't break the primary ten regulations? Wouldn't we also be zealous to see God's people keep the law so that he would finally end this exile, that he would finally end Roman rule, that he would bring in the age of peace and prosperity? Yes, the Pharisees got it wrong, but let's give them some compassion for a moment. They had the right desire. They wanted to see God's kingdom come on earth. They just didn't have the full understanding of what God's kingdom was and how one truly entered it. The kingdom of God is not an earthly political reality. It's not a worldly kingdom with worldly goals, no matter how good those goals are, with worldly ways of thinking. Sometime later in Jesus' life, recorded in John 18, he's standing before a ruler of a kingdom named Pilate. And he says to him, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were from this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Let me segue for a moment and just talk about the kingdom of God and and some of the ways we've been talking about it and studying it in academic circles over the last several years. For a long time, it felt like, um, at least from my perspective, and I know we've all come from different places in the church, Um, But for a long time, it it felt like a lot of people didn't really talk about the kingdom of God. We spoke a lot about the atonement, spoke a lot about the cross, but not so much about the kingdom. I've been in a few different types of churches, Methodist, Anglican, non-denominational churches, ministries. And I heard lots of sermons on the cross. I heard lots of sermons on sin and salvation. I heard very little, if nothing at all, on the kingdom of God and what it meant to be a part of that. There's a strange absence for a long time of of kingdom teaching and preaching in certain parts of the church. Now that would be understandable. If there was one or two obscure passages tucked away in the New Testament about the kingdom of God, we could understand that, well, yeah, we just didn't preach on this so often. Except for the fact when you open up Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's like on every page. It's Jesus' main topic, kingdom this, kingdom that. How could we overlook that? How could we forget about it? Well, rightfully so, in recent years, uh, Christians in these parts of the church have begun to rediscover kingdom. Well, what was Jesus talking about? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. We're wrestling with what that means. We're trying to fit together cross and kingdom and see how those work in tandem. Some of the result of this rediscovery of Jesus' kingdom teaching is that Christians are realizing that our faith isn't just about getting our sins forgiven so we can go to heaven when we die. 
that God's kingdom is this present reality. It has to do with life now on this earth as well as the future. As citizens of God's kingdom, we are to bring its reality to bear in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. We're not just to focus on escaping planet earth, but to bear witness to the incredible truth that God's kingdom has already broken into our world. And in the end, guess what? We're not just escaping like angels up into heaven. Heaven's coming down to earth. We're going to be resurrected into new bodies. They're going to be this renewed creation that we will live and reign with Christ the Lord. The Lord's prayer will finally be fulfilled. Things on earth will be as things are in heaven. So I celebrate this in my own life and in education and as I've studied things to see and to grapple more with what does the kingdom of God mean? It is biblical and we had been leaving it out in certain parts of the church. But here's what I would say to make sure the pendulum doesn't swing too far. We must let John into the conversation on kingdom. He only mentions it a couple of times. Chapter 3, chapter 18, that's it. And I think there's a tendency to say, ah, John's not really talking about kingdom. Let's only talk about Matthew, Mark, and Luke when we study and preach and teach about kingdom. But John's got something important to say. Chapter 3, what we're looking at this morning, he's saying, you can't see or enter the kingdom of God apart from being born from above by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 18, we learn it's not a kingdom from this world. It's otherworldly. I know he doesn't say much, but what he says is critical. He has this more supernatural, spiritual emphasis on the kingdom. We have to let that into the conversation to be a healthy counterbalance to the more this-worldly or political aspects of the kingdom that we get in Matthew, Mark, and Luke and how we end up applying those. In other words, John helps us live in that strange tension of being citizens of the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is not of or from this world, but it's very much for this world. We are to live in the midst of the kingdoms of this world to bear witness to it. But we need to remember that the vast majority of the world is sleepwalking. And as wonderful as our kingdom ministries can be, our creative ways of engaging culture, our legislative efforts, it's not going to wake people up to the kingdom. They're not just magically one day going to be like, oh, I get it now because I saw how you guys explained it. The only way people will get it is to be born from above. Newbegin has another great quote. He says, To experience the kingship of God as a present reality, not merely as a future hope, can only be the result of an act of God himself. It is always a miracle, a mystery, an action from above. It is not and can never be the direct result of either the reasoning of the theologian or the technique of the successful evangelist. You want to see and enter the kingdom of God, you must be born from above. I was pretty strange to Nicodemus. He wasn't understanding what Jesus was saying. But if he thought that was weird, that being born again, being born from above stuff, what Jesus is going to say at the end of our passage is even more weird. It's verses 13 through 15. Jesus is actually going to answer... Nicodemus's implied question from verse 2 when he was saying, hey, we can see you're from God, we can see God's with you. He's going to tell Nicodemus where he's from 
and how someone can experience life in the kingdom. It's a huge revelatory moment. I think it's actually the high point of the passage. We focus on the born again stuff, but I think it's actually building up to this moment. All the stuff about being born again and seeing the kingdom is preparing Nicodemus for what Jesus is going to say in 13 and 14 and 15. So look at verse 13. He says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Son of Man, of course, is Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself. So he's basically saying to Nicodemus, Yes, I am from God, but in a much greater way than you realize. I have come down from heaven. I am the link between heaven and earth. I am Jacob's ladder where this heavens have been opened, and I have come down. In me and only in me can one access the heavens and have true knowledge of God. You will never be able to build your way up to the heavens through theological knowledge like the Tower of Babel. Heaven has to come down to earth. That is who I am. It's a pretty bold statement. I wonder what was going through Nicodemus' head at this point. We're not told. But then what Jesus says next in verses 14 and 15 is even more outlandish. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Now that story, that reference would have been familiar to Nicodemus, um, maybe not as much to us. Uh, Jesus is referring back to Numbers chapter 21. This story, when the Israelites were wandering around in the desert, when they wandered, they grumbled. They did a lot of that against God, against Moses. God was angry with his people for not trusting him. And so he sends fiery serpents that bite the people and some die. Do you remember the story? Well, they cried out to Moses and they said, help. And Moses uh, went and he interceded before God. And God gave Moses these instructions. Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, when he looks up at that, that serpent on a pole, he shall live. Why is Jesus referencing this story? He's revealing to Nicodemus that he too will be lifted up on a pole of sorts. A wooden cross, in fact. And every rebellious human being, bitten by sin, under the sentence of death, can look up at this man on a pole and believe and have eternal life. So not only has Jesus revealed to Nicodemus that he and only he is the one through whom a person can have knowledge of God, but he's now told him the the great mystery of the gospel, one of the hardest things to understand, that Jesus will lay down his own life in order to bring life to the world. We've heard that. We know that. I think sometimes the, the shocking value of that is lost on us, but that would have been incredibly surprising, offensive, bewildering to a person like Nicodemus. And here's the thing. No one is ever going to believe that on their own. No one, after thinking about it long enough, is naturally going to arrive at this conclusion that the Christian gospel is true. A single man who is the only way to God with all the other religions of the world, how can that be? A crucified Messiah to a Jewish mind? That that didn't make sense. Dying in apparent defeat? The death of a common criminal? All of this was foolishness 
in the world's eyes. It's nonsense. And I think even today in a Christian culture where we live, uh, people know the idea, we're not as offended necessarily by the idea of being Christian, but we're still offended by cross. We still have ways of sort of sanitizing that out. We don't want to talk about sin and death and blood and cross. Let's just make Christianity into something more palatable, please. Can we just just make it into being nice or moral or, or doing good deeds? Paul knew this as well. He writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The cross is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Many of us, I would say all of us, have people in our lives whom we are aching in our souls that they would know the gospel of Jesus. That they would know the freedom and the joy of it. We've had friends and loved ones who have heard the truth. Maybe they've heard it from us as we've tried to explain it. But they don't believe. It breaks our hearts. A child, a parent, a sibling, a good friend, a neighbor, a coworker, anyone. Why don't they believe? Why don't they see this? As we grow and mature in our faith, we see the, the truth of it and the beauty of it more and more and more. Why do others not believe it? Why do some mock it? Paul explains in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Paul is actually just expanding on Jesus' point from John 3. It's impossible to believe in the cross. It's impossible to accept the gospel. It's impossible to enter the kingdom of God unless one has been born from above. Unless the Holy Spirit does a sovereign work of new creation in our lives. But here's what I would say to keep our hope alive. We may not see the evidence of faith in a person's life. But we should never conclude that the Holy Spirit is not at work. A different part in this passage in the middle, Jesus talks about how the Spirit and people born of Him are like the wind. They're wild and unpredictable. He says the wind blows wherever it wishes. We hear it sound, but we don't know where it comes from or where it goes. The Spirit is on the move. He doesn't always do things the same way. Just like every birth, every physical birth is different, so is every spiritual birth. We need to remember that as we pray for our friends and loved ones to not give up hope. What about Nicodemus? Where was the wind of God in his life? What, was he doing something? Well, we don't hear from him again in John chapter 3. He kind of, as the passage moves along, he just kind of fades from view. One scholar said he, he fades back into the darkness from which he came. But he does show up again in John chapter 7. Some of the Jewish leaders are trying to arrest Jesus. Uh, they're angry with Jesus. But Nicodemus distances himself from these Pharisees. He stands up for Jesus and he says, Shouldn't a man have a fair trial before we judge him? That's not evidence of a full-blown faith, but perhaps we see the breeze of the Holy Spirit blowing. And he shows up one final time in John 19. And this one, I think, is even more significant. After Jesus was crucified, John tells us that two men took his body and laid it to rest. 
Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, and Nicodemus. Nicodemus was the one who brought the spices to prepare Jesus' body, and he brought a huge amount, like 75 pounds of spices. Perhaps it was an expression of his devotion, maybe his growing love for Christ. I also can't help wondering if Nicodemus saw Jesus on the cross. We're not told that he was there, but maybe he was there and he saw Jesus. And what if he thought about that conversation that night? What if he thought about the reference to Moses? What if he thought about the man lifted up on the pole? We can look to him. We can believe. We can have life. And surely Nicodemus, a few days later, heard the reports that Jesus had been risen. If anyone knew that Jesus was dead, it was Nicodemus. He personally handled the dead body. What did the news of resurrection do in this man's life? Was that the moment that the Holy Spirit woke him up? The moment that he was born from above by the Holy Spirit? We don't know for sure. We can't ever know for sure for anybody who is born from above and and who is not. At the end of the age, I think we're going to be surprised at some of the people that we meet and some of the people that we don't meet. But as for Nicodemus, I'd like to believe that the Holy Spirit was at work in his life. And I think in the age to come, we will meet him. Because I think at some point, God, in his love, in his mercy, woke him up. And he saw the light of the world and stepped into the dawn and believed. Let's pray. Father, it is a humbling thing to know that we don't have the power to believe. We don't have the power in and of ourselves to enter and see the kingdom. For those of us who know you and love you and have seen the kingdom, we thank you that in your love and mercy you woke us up, that you gave us a new birth from above. For those of us who have not seen that and not believed, Lord, I would pray that you would, by the wind of the Holy Spirit, blow in their lives, in their minds, in their hearts and emotions, and wake them up to this new life. We pray that for our friends, for our loved ones who don't know you. Help us, Lord, to live well as people who have been born from above. We thank you, we bless you, we praise your name. In the name of Jesus, amen.